The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, thank you everybody for coming out here today, and I hope you're uh, refreshed. And I want to consider uh, what the book of Revelation has to say about the Gospel. So we're going apocalyptic for the next hour or so, and uh, I'll try not to uh, refute everything that we've just heard. It's not going to be all about escaping uh, in the by and by. But I've given you a handout. You should have that. Um, it, was, it would have been given to you when you came in. It's just an outline of the talk, some key passages there, and then on the back, this is the text I'm going to be talking about here. So you've got that to refer to, and I'll be referring to it throughout what I have to say today. So if you want to read it here, or if you want to look it up in your Bible, you can do that. I'm going to read it from my Bible, the book of Revelation. I'll be reading from Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, right through to Revelation 14, verse 7. So Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimonies of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. It makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to the earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, 
telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you would deal bountifully with your servants, that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've just prayed that we would behold wondrous things in God's Word, and the book of Revelation is filled with weird and wondrous things. And it's not my purpose this morning to go through this text detail by detail, trying to decode everything that we read there. And if I can just make a recommendation right now, don't ask questions about little details here and there. Who do you, what does 666 mean and all of that stuff? Let's try and stick with the big picture that we're focusing on today. And in many ways, the book of Revelation, yes, it is a difficult book, but it's also actually meant to be an easy book. It's meant to reveal something. And it's a book that's meant to be heard, and in hearing the book, we're blessed. And actually, seven times in the book of Revelation, we're told that uh, there's a blessing. And actually, the book is written for our blessing, and I want us to be blessed by what we've heard today. I want us, want us to be blessed by this book. Seven times there's a blessing. And that number itself is significant. Number, uh, the number seven means uh, something that has a fullness to it, a completion. So there's a complete blessing that comes with the book. 
And if you look at the individual blessings in the book, two of the blessings are uh, addressed to those who are raised from the dead. Uh, Two of the blessings are addressed to those who have kept their garments clean, who have kept themselves pure. Two of the blessings are addressed to those who keep the words of this prophecy. And then there's the seventh, and the seventh happens to be number four in the list, if you're going through the book. That means it's, it's, it's at the center of things. And that we read in Revelation 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And actually, the blessing of the book of Revelation is a blessing for the bride. This is a marriage blessing that's pronounced in this book. And the bride is called to keep herself pure, keep her garments clean, to keep the word of her husband. The bride is resurrected on the last day. It's the, it's the blessing for the bride, and it's actually a marriage blessing that's pronounced in the book of Revelation. And it's in the context of this wonderful marriage between Christ and the church that we need to understand this passage that I've just read. And it's by hearing the words and keeping them that we're blessed by the revelation. And that's what I want to do uh, today, is I want us to consider uh, what we hear in this text. What's to be heard? Because in the hearing, there's blessing. But also, I want to consider what does it mean to keep the words of this prophecy? What does it mean to keep this text? So hearing and keeping. And it's a marriage blessing. It's a word of blessing for the church. And in the context of the, um, in what I just read from Revelation 13 and 14, that is actually part of a, a window or an interlude within the book, which is all about the woman and her enemies. It begins with uh, the presentation of the bride, of the woman, and then we have the introduction of the dragon, and the dragon pursues the woman into the wilderness, and then we have that last verse with the dragon standing on the seashore. And he calls up from the sea a beast. He's going to wage war against the woman. How he does it is by calling up this beast from the sea. And then there's another beast. And that beast is from the earth. And that beast leads all of the inhabitants of the earth to worship the first beast. And the result of all of this is actually a, a, a liturgy, a satanic liturgy. And the peoples of the earth marvel who is like the beast. So this is the context. It has to do with the faithfulness of the bride of Christ against the opposition from the dragon, from these two beasts. And what we have in Revelation 14, another vision, is actually the the presentation of the husband and the wife, the lamb and his bride. She's described as having kept herself pure. And she stands there with her husband, with the lamb. And there's another liturgy. And it's a true liturgy. There's no lie found in their mouth. So we have this picture of these two liturgies. We have this picture of this, uh, those who betroth themselves to the beast and those who betroth themselves to the land. And the blessing for us in hearing these visions comes by hearing them, opening up our ears. What's it saying to us? We need to hear that. And then also keeping it. So you'll see on your handout there, that's what I want to consider. What it, what it means to, what, what do we hear in this text? And then what does it mean to keep it? So I begin then with that first vision that John has of this beast coming up out of the sea. And again, it's very important when we're reading the book of Revelation that we're using our ears, not our eyes. Now I'm sure as as I was reading this and you were hearing it, you were visualizing this monster. You were picturing the seven heads and 
the ten horns and it, you know, okay, it's kind of got leopard parts and bare feet and a lion's mouth. We're picturing that. But actually, the book of Revelation is a book that, that should be heard. Not so much seen, but heard. And notice right in our passage, it says, let anyone who has an ear hear. It doesn't say anyone with eyes, let them see. So the imagery of the book of Revelation, it needs to be heard. We need to hear it. It's not something that we visualize per se. And in hearing about a beast coming up out of the sea, there's an echo to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And in Daniel, there are beasts that come up out of the sea. And it's very clear from Daniel 7 that these beasts represent kingdoms. And they are beastly kingdoms because they are not uh, kingdoms that submit to the rule of God. And what Joe presented to us this morning is very helpful because uh, Psalm 8 gives us the picture of a truly human kingdom. A human kingdom that reflects God, that imitates God, that bears his character and exercises his rule. But the beastly kingdoms in the book of Daniel, uh, they blaspheme God's name. They express haughty words. It's the same as this beast. And so they're beastly. They're not human. They're beastly. And they oppose God, and they oppose God's people. And when we hear about a beast that has all of these beastly parts to it coming up out of the sea, we're meant to hear, oh, a kingdom. This is a kingdom that opposes God and opposes God's people. That's what the beast is. But notice that the beast seeks to imitate God. It seeks to imitate Christ. And this may be lost as we're thinking about all of these different symbols and, and, uh, and, and the description of the character of the beast. But it's actually a beast that's masquerading as Christ. And we can see lots of um, parallels between the way that Christ is depicted in the Revelation and between the way that the beast is depicted. Both Jesus and the beast carry a sword. Both have followers who are identified with marks on their foreheads. Both have horns. Both are mortally wounded and then healed. Both have authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. And both receive universal worship. And Phil, if you can just throw up that image for me. I think the, uh, the early Renaissance painter, Luca Signorelli, uh, Signorelli, it's not too big, but I think you get the picture there, uh, does a wonderful job of presenting this to us. This is actually his depiction of the Antichrist. But you can see that the Antichrist kind of looks like Christ. He imitates Christ. And the people, this is a detail of a larger scene where there's all kinds of strange things going on around him. Uh, the title of the painting is called The Sermons and the Deeds of the Antichrist. But that looks like Christ on a pedestal there. But notice behind him you have the devil and he's whispering in his ear. And in the Revelation, who's behind the beast? The dragon. And you can even see the left hand of Christ there. It's not clear whether that's his hand or the devil's hand. So who's really at work here? And this is what's being revealed to the church, that the state that opposes you and opposes God is actually satanic. It's listening to the whispering uh, counsel of the devil. Its hand is actually exercising the power and authority of the dragon. And notice how the people respond. Having been deceived, they offer worship. And human beings are worshiping creatures. And they offer worship to the beast. And they say, who is like the beast? And this is actually a question that is sung in praise and celebration throughout Scripture with reference to Yahweh, to God. Who is like God? After the deliverance of the people of Israel in Exodus, the people sang, 
Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, and doing wonders? Well, the very worship that should be directed to the Lord is directed to the beast. Who is like the beast? The beast represents throughout history any manifestation of a kingdom on earth that is a beastly kingdom that opposes God, that opposes his people. And the beastliness is revealed in the fact that the state, the kingdom, will take on to itself a divine status. And it will claim for itself sovereignty that belongs to God alone. It claims to itself to be a savior, a deliverer. And this is what the beast is doing. It's exercising the authority as if it's God, imitating God. And that issue of sovereignty is significant. It means we, the beast, the kingdom is saying, in effect, we make the laws. We decide what is right and wrong. We define good and evil. We define when life begins and when life ends. We will legislate what marriage is. We will define sexuality. It's, it's an exercise of, uh, of sovereignty that it actually doesn't have. But it's claiming it. It speaks words of blasphemy. These are the haughty words. And also it will claim to be the deliverer of the people, to save the people, to provide and care for the people. This is what the beast does. And the people respond, who is like the beast? Now, notice that the beast calls to itself and has under its rule people from every tribe and language and people and nation who dwell on the earth. There's a certain multiculturalism here. That seems to authenticate the rule of the beast. Look, everybody agrees. Everyone's together on this. Look at how people have been united in this kingdom. But in the midst of it, there's another group of people who also come from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And they bend the knee to another king, to the Lamb. And this is what we've already heard if you've read through the Revelation, chapter 5, the Lamb of God, who has purchased for himself a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So the church, too, is in the midst of all this and is saying, no, that's not the king. In fact, that's a beast. Look at its feet. Look at its mouth. It's a beast. It points out the beastly characteristics of, of the state, of the kingdom. The saints are described as those who keep the commandments of God. We know the commandments of God. We keep them, and we keep the testimony of Jesus. And we say, no, he's the Lord. He's the Savior. And holding the testimony of Jesus means that's not the Lord. That's not the Savior. That's a beast. And look, there's a dragon. That's part of the faithful witness of the church in any age. Not simply to say, this is Jesus, but to say, that's a beast. That's a dragon. And to point out the beastly features of the of the beast but the beast will respond and notice there's a passing reference to the saints here the beast wages war against the saints and beastly kingdoms will always eventually wage war against the saints because they stand there saying you're a beast that's the king and the beast can't tolerate that and the way that the beast uh, wages war against the saints is to say no these are the monsters they're the intolerant ones. They're going against this wonder, wonderful multicultural thing we've got going on here. They're the monsters. And there's no place for monsters in this kingdom. 
And so that's where the persecution comes in. Now in the early church, the, I think the, the, the martyrdom of Polycarp is very helpful here. It puts, it puts flesh on this, what I'm talking about here. Polycarp was hauled before the Roman authorities. He was told to renounce Christ or else he would be executed. And this is what he says. For 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And notice that declaration, my king who saved me. Jesus is the king, he's Lord, who saves us and Savior. And this just happens to be the title that the Roman Caesars claimed for themselves. The Roman Caesars said, I am Lord and Savior, Lord and God. Polycarp says, no, Christ is my king who saves me. So he's, he's, uh, the sentence is passed and he's led into the arena. And there's just a detail in the account which I find fascinating and it says so much. As he's walking into the arena to face his execution, the crowds there are shouting out, saying, this is the teacher of impiety. That's what they're saying. This is the teacher of impiety. Now those who uh, are quite at home in the beastly kingdom, who give their allegiance to the beast, this is how they will view the saints. The teachers of impiety, those who keep the commandments of God, those who hold to the testimony of Jesus, they are the teachers of impiety. And increasingly, we all know this, this is how Christian teaching is received in our culture. It's not just, oh, you're Christians and you have those views. No, your views are immoral. They're wrong. You're the teachers of impiety. You're intolerant. You're bigoted. Polycarp had the same experience, the teacher of impiety. Now, how does this happen that the church gets called the teacher of impiety? And why is it that nobody, uh, I shouldn't say nobody, why is it that uh, when the church says, look, that's a beast, that's a dragon, and when it holds forth Christ, why, why is it that uh, so many don't see it? And I think here's where the second beast comes in. The second beast is the one who uh, leads uh, people in the deception, in the lie. It's the propagator of the lie. Saying, no, 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 that's not a beast. There's no dragon there. Everything's fine. Everything's okay. Those are the true monsters. This is what, this is what the, the second beast does. It's, the, uh, it's the, the minister of propaganda, so to speak. And we can think of various manifestations of this, whether it's in the media or in the courts or in the universities. But I think uh, John would have us understand a particular manifestation of this second beast because of the way that he describes the second beast. The second beast looks like a lamb. The second beast performs signs, even calling down fire from heaven. Now what this is saying to us, what we need to hear is, the second beast isn't just a generally a propagator of the lies of the beast. The second beast looks like a Christian, looks like a prophet of God. It imitates a prophet of God. It does the signs and the wonders of a prophet of God. It reminds us of Elijah. It reminds us of Moses. It's not the CBC. It's Christian teachers who exercise this work of the second beast, who are leading people astray. And that's why um, the, the, 
the, the, uh, the propaganda of the beast becomes so palatable and it seems so persuasive. Because look, Christians are kind of on board with this too. There's lots of Christians that say this is okay and they've got, you know, we're coming to a, you know, a, a better understanding of sexuality and we need to be loving and all of this. It's Christians who are saying these things. It looks like a lamb, but it speaks as a dragon. Now just think about that. It looks like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. Remember what Paul says. He warns the Corinthians about false teachers in their church. It's so 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. The second beast also masquerades. The second beast also imitates what's good and right. The second beast is, looks like a prophet. And there's enough in what he's saying that sounds kind of right. I'm hearing a lot of words there that sound right. Love, acceptance. Yeah, these sound like gospel words to us. But they speak as a dragon. And what has the dragon always said from the very beginning? Did God really say? Did God really say? And this is how we know it's the voice of the dragon because it's not what we hear here. And there will always be some qualification or some explanation for why what this clearly says doesn't say it. And I think what uh, Jeremiah says about the false prophets in his, in his own day is helpful here. This is what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 8, verse 8. How can you say, we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. Now just think about that. The lying pen of the scribes, the lying pen of the scholars has made God's law into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord, so what wisdom is in them? They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Even that expression, a church that compromises on God's word has no healing to offer. They heal the wounds of my people lightly. They turn the word of God into a lie. And you can find blogs and websites and books, some of them published by Christian, good, seemingly reliable Christian publishers, which twist the word of God. We read in those pages the lying pen of scholars who turn the word of God into a lie. The false prophet looks like a lamb but it speaks as the devil. And we as the church are called to discern which voices we are hearing. Are we hearing the voice of the devil? Are we hearing the voice of the dragon? Or are we hearing the voice of the lamb? And remember what we read uh, in John's Gospel, where Jesus, uh, the lamb who is the shepherd, he says this, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice. And then notice the last thing that the false prophet does. He causes people to be marked. Marked on the forehead or on the hand. 
And this mark is a sign of ownership. It means they belong to the beast. They're his. And again, the mark is a parody. It's an imitation. It's an imitation of of, uh, the seal with which the people of God, the 144,000, are sealed in Revelation 7. And the sealing of the people of God in Revelation 7 says that they belong to him. They've been betrothed to him. They're his. But in Revelation 13, those who dwell on the earth have been marked with the mark of the beast. They belong to him. So we have these two peoples, those that belong to the beast and bear his mark and those who belong to the lamb and bear his seal. And this is where John takes us in the very next vision. It's a vision of the lamb and the 144,000. In contrast to everything that we've just heard about this beastly, satanic, dragon-inspired liturgy, here we have a true liturgy. And notice the location of this. It's not the sea, which in Scripture is often a symbol for evil and chaos. It's not the earth, the prophet from the earth. And those who dwell on the earth are those who don't belong to God's people. There's an earthliness to it. And the teaching of the false prophet, yes, looks like uh, he looks like a lamb, but his teaching is actually earthly and it's deceptive. But where are we now in Revelation 14? We're on Mount Zion. Not the sea, not the earth, Mount Zion. This is the place of God's dwelling. This is the place of the temple. In the temple, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the testimony is there, his word. This is where we are now, Mount Zion. And there we see presented to us the lamb and the 144,000. Now, I will just comment on this number, 144,000. The book of Revelation uses a lot of numbers, and in my view, we don't interpret those as references to some sort of a numeric measurement or quantity. They're symbolic. 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 10 times 10. 10 is a number of completion. Fullness, 12, also a number of completion, but it carries the the connotation of a, a diversity, a complete diversity, a fullness every tribe and language and tongue and people. So what that number actually tells us is this is the full number of the people of God. Everybody's there. Not one is missing. Everyone is there. And actually, Revelation 7, when John sees the 144,000, it's a multitude too great to count, he's told. And it's not just 12 tribes of Israel. It's every language, tongue, or sorry, every, uh, every people, tongue, nation. So that's who's with him. And actually, it's the presentation of the bride and her bridegroom, the lamb and the 144,000. Now, we're not given an elaborate description of the lamb, as we, as we are about the two beasts. It's just simply stated, the lamb is there. And actually, that's enough to hear that. That in the midst of all of this satanic liturgy and beastly worship, and in, as these two beasts are at work, and behind them, dragon, in the midst of all that, there's the lamb. And we've already met the Lamb. We know the Lamb. He's the one at the center of all of the cosmic and heavenly worship in Revelation 5. He's the one who's purchased for himself by his blood a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. He's described there as having seven eyes and seven horns. Now, it's weird to imagine that, but we're meant to hear it. Hear that. Seven eyes and seven horns. Seven eyes means that he's all-seeing, all-knowing, seven horns, all-powerful. 
In the midst of everything we've just heard in Revelation 13, the Lamb is present. He sees what's going on and he's going to do something about it. That's the hope of the revelation. And we're with him. His bride is with him, the 144,000 on that mountain. And what is the bride doing? She's singing. Here is true worship. There's no lie found in her, her mouth. She is faithful and true. She is singing. There's another liturgy there. And the lamb is the one who is being worshipped and glorified. She's described as having his name and his father's name on her forehead. I'll just think about that. She bears his name and his father's name. What happens when a woman marries a man? Usually, I know it's different these days, but she takes his name and his father's name. This is the bride. She's got his name and her father's name. And it says, these are those who, are not who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, in the symbolic universe of the book of Revelation, this is a reference to the faithfulness of the bride. She has kept herself pure. She hasn't compromised or participated in any of this beastly activity. She's kept herself pure. She's kept herself for her husband. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, again, verse 2, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And this is who is presented to us in chapter 14, the pure virgin. So this is what we hear in these verses. There's a beastly kingdom. Behind the beastly kingdom is a dragon. And those who dwell on the earth marvel at the dragon and the beast, and they worship. And there's a false prophet who looks like a prophet of God, looks like a lamb, speaks as a dragon. And the false prophet leads many astray. But then we have Mount Zion, and we have the lamb, we have his bride, the 144,000. They've betrothed themselves to him. They belong to him. They bear his name. They sing his praises. There we have a faithful and true liturgy. And then we have, in verses 6 and 7, an angel appearing and the proclamation of an eternal gospel. And I'll just read, read those verses again for us. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people, and he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. That's the eternal gospel. It's eternal because it's God's word, and God's word endures forever. Notice that it's addressed to those who dwell on the earth. It's not addressed to those on Mount Zion. It's addressed to those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. These are the very people who are being deceived. The gospel is addressed to them. And the gospel proclaims three things. It announces judgment. The hour of his judgment is coming. This is a judgment on the dragon, on the beast, on the second beast who is the false prophet, and those who follow them. But it's also a call to repentance. It's a call to fear God and worship him. It's a, it's a call to renounce the beastliness, to turn to the Lamb, to turn to your true husband. It's a summons to worship Him, to give glory to Him. 
And it's an invitation to salvation. We see this reference to God actually throughout Scripture. Uh, Paul in the book of Acts and his own preaching in the book of Revelation. God is the one who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in it. God is the one who made the heavens and the earth and the sea. We hear that again and again in Scripture. But notice what the eternal gospel says here. God is the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and there's an addition, the springs of water. And I think we're meant to hear there an echo back to Revelation 7, where we also have the Lamb and we have the 144,000. And this is what we read there. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be her shepherd, And he will guide her to springs of living water. Springs of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The eternal gospel is this announcement from Zion to those who dwell on the earth. To recognize his judgment, to repent and turn and write worship, true worship to the Lamb. It's also an invitation to salvation. To be a follower of the Lamb. And the Lamb will lead you to springs of living water. Now, that's all hearing, what, what we hear in this text. But the blessing comes not just for those who hear this word, but also keep it. And John, even in this very, very passage, says, let anyone who has an ear hear. But then he also goes on to say, here is a call to endurance, the endurance and faith of the saints. And it's a call for our endurance and faith. And what is it calling us to? How do we keep this word? Well, I think we keep it simply by the way, uh, by living up to the description of us at the end of Revelation 12. We're those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's what it means to keep this word. That's what it means to endure and to be faithful. So first, keeping the commandments of God. And here, again, I want to go back to what I mentioned before. Hearing the commandments of God means that we we know what the commandments of God are. It means that we discern the voice of the Lamb. We recognize His voice and we follow Him. We recognize that the false prophet, the second beast, yes, looks like a lamb, but speaks as a dragon. And we recognize the voice of the dragon when he speaks. Now, there's a wonderful story written by a 19th century Russian uh, philosopher and theologian named Vladimir Solovyev. It's called, uh, it's the simple title, at least in English, is A Short Story of the Antichrist. And at the beginning of that story, uh, the devil, Satan, comes to a certain man. And he says this to the man. I love you and ask nothing of you. You are beautiful powerful and great. Do your work in your own name, not in mine. I have no envy. I love you. I want nothing from you. He whom you regarded as God asked of his son boundless obedience unto death, even the death of the cross, and he did not help him on the cross. I ask nothing of you, and I will help you. I will help you for your own sake, for the sake of your own dignity and excellence and of my pure disinterested love for you. Receive my spirit. And this is what the devil will say to us. I love you. You're great. 
We need to discern the voice of the devil. Yes, the false prophet and many of these false teachers today, they look like a lamb, but they speak as the dragon. But what does the lamb say to us? How do we know the voice of the lamb? How do we know the voice of the shepherd? Well, his love for us is certain. We know it. He redeemed for, he's, he's redeemed us by his blood. The cross is the demonstration of his love for us. But in love, he comes to us and he also says to us, as he says to his bride in Revelation 2 and 3, I have this against you. And as he says to the church in Laodicea, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. The devil doesn't, want to, doesn't ask us to repent, but the lamb does. He says, repent and follow me. So hearing the word and keeping the word means that we submit to the word. It means that we repent. It's the spirit of repentance is the fruit of those, uh, the evidence of those who follow the lamb. And his word to us is a sanctifying word. It's a cleansing word. Remember what uh, Paul says about uh, the ministry of the husband to uh, his wife, Christ to the church. He sanctifies her. He washes her by the word that he might present her without spot and wrinkle, that she may be holy and without blemish. Well, here is the call to endurance and faithfulness then. It's faithfulness to our husband. It's faithfulness to Christ. His word, listening for his word, responding to his word, which means repentance and obedience. And even as we keep his word, we do so in the knowledge that he keeps us. He's a faithful husband. He's the faithful and true witness. He's pledged himself to us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. I love the way that John begins his account of the Last Supper in John chapter 13. Just before he washes his disciples' feet, John tells us, having loved his own in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved those he redeemed from the earth, he loves them to the end. But we're also to hold the testimony of Jesus. And that's, that's the second half of verse 17, Revelation 12. Holding the testimony of Jesus. And what does it mean to hold the testimony of Jesus? Well, it means being faithful and true in our declaration of the gospel. Faithful and true in our declaration of who he is. And again, I'll, I'll refer to this uh, story by Soloviev. A short story about the Antichrist. This man to whom the devil came and made these, you know, made these wonderful, flattering words of promise uh, ends up becoming a world leader, the world leader, the emperor. And he writes a wonderful book about all of the strategies for unifying all of the, the nations and bringing about peace and justice, and it starts to happen under his rule, and everybody is unified, and everything is wonderful. But in the meantime, the Christians are a bit uncomfortable with this ruler. And he's aware of this. So he calls a council in Jerusalem. And he invites representatives from the Roman Catholic Church, from the Eastern Orthodox Church, and from the Protestant churches. And they all gather to meet with him in Jerusalem. And when they're all there, he says to them, what is most precious to you Christians? You seem to be reluctant to submit to my rule. What is most precious to you? And I'll give it to you. And he turns to the Catholics and in the story, the, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, has been exiled. 
So he turns to the Catholics and he says, I will restore your Pope to the See of Rome, and I will bestow on him all of the rights and the privileges that he has enjoyed. And the Catholics throw up a cheer, and many of them rush from their seats and go down and pay homage to the Emperor. Because he says, all I ask is that you recognize me as your defender and patron. And and many of them rush down. But the Pope himself, whose name is Peter II, he stays in his seat. And then he turns to the Orthodox. And he says, I know how important uh, tradition and history are to you. Well, I am personally going to fund and build a museum in Constantinople. And there will be a collection of all of the relics and treasures of antiquity, and there will be a a center for the study and preservation of these things. All I ask is that you recognize me as your Lord. And again, many of the Orthodox rush down to pay him homage. But the leader of the Orthodox, whose name is Elder John, stays in his seat. And then he turns to the Protestants, and he says, I know how much you value the free inquiry of the scriptures. And he says, you may know that as a young man, I did some studies in biblical criticism, and I've just recently been given an honorary doctorate of theology from the University of Tübingen. And he says, I, your doctor of theology, will establish a center, a world center for the free inquiry and study of the scriptures. And there I will invite scholars who will study it from every, the scriptures from every possible perspective. Only come and recognize me as your Lord. And again, many of the Protestants rush down and pay him homage. But the, the leader of the Protestants, his name is Professor Paul. He stays in his seat. Well, when the adulation of all of these Christians dies down, the emperor looks up at those who remain in their seats and he turns to Peter and John and Paul. And he says this to them. Oh, I'll read now from Soloviev. The emperor addressed them in a tone of sadness. What more can I do for you? Strange men, what do you want of me? I do not know. Tell me yourselves, you Christians, You Christians forsaken by most of your brothers and leaders and condemned by popular feeling. What is most precious to you in Christianity? Then straight and slender like a white church candle, the elder John stood up and answered gently. Great emperor, most precious to us in Christianity is Christ himself. He himself. And everything rests on him. For we know that in him all the fullness of Godhead dwells bodily. But from you too, sire, we are ready to receive every blessing if only we recognize in your bountiful hands the holy hand of Christ. And here is our straight answer to your question of what you can do for us. Confess now, here before us, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came in the flesh, rose from the dead, and is coming Again, well, this is what's most precious to us, the testimony of Jesus, Christ himself, the Lamb himself. And we are those who confess him, who sing to him, who praise and worship him, who follow him wherever he goes. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me.
We are the redeemed from the earth, and we are called to say in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This is the eternal gospel. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to worship God alone, the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. It's a call to salvation. It's a call to be true to the Lamb, for we are betrothed to him. And the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And as we enter into this Advent season, let's do so with our hearts turned towards Christ, longing for Christ. Let's be like the bride in the Song of Songs. This is the Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 14. It's part of the, the song of the bride to her bridegroom. In the midst of the din and the noise of the satanic liturgy of the world, of the worship and the marvel at the beast and the dragon, let us say with the bride, O my dove in the clefts of the rock in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.